We started a very uh, short, sort of an, an interlude of a sermon series that we've entitled Family Values. And the idea is very simple. As a church family, as a part, a unique part of, of the big church, the capital C church, the big family of God, we know that every local church has a unique uh, role to play in Jesus' mission. We're not like the answer to, to, to what God is doing in Portland by any means, but we are a part of what God has started in this city. We know that God has been working in this city for at least 100 years because we're sitting in the proof of that, this building. Uh, but what is God leading us to do specifically? We have a few distinct missional objectives like planting a church and, and just growing and reaching people and preaching the gospel, living the gospel, inviting people to repent and put their faith in Jesus. Um, we want to reach students. That's something very specific to us. That at the very outset, when we were still in the praying stages of, of planting this church and, and being Gray City in Portland, we all agreed that God was saying, reach the students in this city. Reach the students at PSU. Bring the gospel to the students at WSU in Vancouver and all the different universities, uh, U of P, the community colleges. That's a distinct sort of missional objective the Gray City has in the city. Um, there's other things as well that I believe that as we're approaching the third year of our, our lifespan as a church, that God wants to remind us of as a family some values that are going to be important for us to be reminded of, to embrace, to renew as we continue on uh, into the next season of our life as a church family. So family values. What are those family values? The first one we talked about was simply friendship. Friendship. We are friends with Jesus. We are friends with one another. And we want to invite the whole world to meet our best friend, Jesus. That's a really important value that we have as a church family. Secondly, last week we talked about faithfulness and how a relationship is only as meaningful as it is uh, built on trust. So ultimately, our relationship with God is built on a foundation of our faith in him. We trust him. He's gone to unfathomable ends to show us how trustworthy he is by sending his own son, Jesus, to die for us. So we trust him. In our relationships, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to take building trust, being vulnerable with each other, and being faithful to one another seriously. Otherwise, friendship is just an idea. It's just this sort of abstract concept that sounds good, but let's face it, no one's really doing it. So faithfulness is a big one. This week, the third, and I know you're all thinking, what is the third F word? I've got to hear it. You know, a wise old preacher said to me one time, you know that the spirit is moving when the sermon is alliterated. So the third <laughs> F, some of you are looking at me like, not funny, not funny, church, chill. The third F that we're going to cover this morning is fruitfulness. Amen. It's a family Value. We are called to be fruitful because we're not just here to kill time. We're not just here because we're bored. We're not just here to check off some sort of uh, religious obligation or duty. We gather together because God calls us to grow. In fact, it says in uh, the book of Ephesians that we are to grow up in 
every way into the head who is Christ Jesus. We come together like this for a variety of reasons, but one of them, which we're talking about this morning, is that we would grow in fruitfulness. God is leading us somewhere. He is forming more and more of Christ in us, that as his body, all parts come together, we would resemble him more and more. God is moving. He's leading us someplace. He wants us to bear fruit, to be fruitful. So that's what we're talking about this morning. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. This is Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. We're going to read just a few verses. Then God said, let us make man, or mankind, the word is Adam. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Everything. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, him male and female. He created them. I love that. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all of the fish of the sea and all the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pause there. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He blesses them. He brings them together. He blesses them and then he commissions them to bear fruit, to fill the earth and subdue it. The word subdue it's the Hebrew word um, kabash or kavash. It's, uh, you maybe, maybe you've heard the idiom like, let's go put the uh, kabash on them. Like, let's shut it down. Let's, let's take it over. Let's put a stop to the chaos or the evil. Let's put the kabash down on them. Ever heard that? Something like old gangsters say. <laughs> let's put the kabash down on them. Yeah, something like that. It's a picture of God bringing his creation together, it begins with this beautiful picture of intimacy, it's relationship, it's marriage in this specific case. He blesses them, why? So that they might be fruitful. That they might be fruitful in such a way that this world that they're living in would be impacted. The picture is that although the garden, the, 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 the goodness of creation is certainly this picture of serenity. It's this picture of, of beauty. It's, it's also a picture of, of incompleteness. It's, it's, it's like this picture of a, of a wild uh, garden that still needs cultivating. And so God creates his people and gives them the opportunity. He invites them in to participate in the work that he has begun. And he gives them a role to play. 
He says, take this crazy jungle, this unfinished place, this garden, this this wild terrain, and together, let me bless you and then give you the opportunity to participate and subdue it, which would also include the evil that's in this place. Because if we read on in chapter 3, we realize that there is something, something mysterious and sinister creeping in the garden. It's the serpent. It's the snake. It's the deceiver. Does it go well for them, Adam and Eve? No, not at all. If you've ever read the story, it goes terribly bad. They are deceived. It says in Genesis 3 that the serpent comes, tempts them, specifically uh, the woman first, and they decide to not trust God, and as a result, the man ends up blaming his wife, this amazing gift that God's given him, for all that's gone wrong. Relationship begins to dissolve. No, it doesn't go well. In Genesis 4, they actually do bear fruit, as it were. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. Perhaps you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Everyone knows Cain and Abel, even if you're not like a Bible nerd. Um, Cain and Abel, they have two sons. They bear fruit. Does it go well? No, not at all. Um, In fact, Cain, the older brother, ends up killing his little brother. Apparently, there's some sort of situation. It's it's slightly uh, unexplanatory. We're, We're told that they bring offerings to God. Cain, he's a farmer. He brings the Lord the first fruits of the ground. Uh, Abel is a hunter or some sort of a, he, he's a herder, he's a shepherd. And he brings God an offering of his livestock. And uh, for whatever reason, and I've heard all sorts of theories about it, God rejects Cain's offering but accepts Abel. Envy, jealousy, Hurt, feelings, insecurity happens, and Cain ends up killing his brother. Now, this pattern, the reason why I'm kind of belaboring this a little bit, this pattern ends up continuing on for the first several uh, chapters of Genesis. Let me just sketch it out quickly. So, here's the garden. Here's Adam, plus his wife, Eve. God blesses them in their relationship and commissions them to be fruitful and to do it in such a way that all of creation is impacted for the better. Doesn't work out. They attempt to bear fruit. The fruit ends up killing itself. Rotten fruit. Next, and this is in Genesis uh, chapter 6, we come to the story of Noah. Ten generations passed. God looks at how things have progressed and realizes that it's all gone terribly, terribly wrong. We've gone from bad to worse to much, much worse in just ten, ten generations. God chooses to show favor upon a man named Noah. He has a wife. We're not told her name. 
Um, but he has a wife and he has three sons. And he says, I'm going to start over. I'm going to cleanse the earth. I'm going to use the earth to cleanse the earth. And I want you to build an ark. I'm going to bring you through the waters that I might rescue you and start over. He does it. He obeys. They pass through the waters. And you know what God says when they come out on the other side? In Genesis chapter 9, he comes out of the boat. He builds an altar to honor God, to worship God. And then God says to Noah and his family, three times in fact, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same directive that he gave Adam and Eve, he's now giving once again to Noah. He blesses them and commissions them in the context of his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is uh, 10 generations. Another 10 generations go by. Things once again go from a little better to bad to worse to much, much worse. Eventually we get to uh, Babel, we get to uh, more corruption, more evil, more death, more mistrust, the humans becoming autonomous, once again refusing to trust God and make a name for themselves instead. Ten generations later, we come to a man named Abraham. Abraham is 75 years old when God chooses him. We don't know why. He's just a guy. He's married to a woman named Sarah. They're both very old. Abraham's 75. Sarah's probably almost just as old. And God makes a promise to him. and He says, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the world through your family. I'm going to multiply you so that your family is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through you, through your family, I'm going to change the world. By the way, this is Mount Moriah. And on the top of this little mound, Abraham built an altar when God commanded him to sacrifice his only son, a son named Isaac, which is my son's name. At the very last moment, just before Abraham is about to follow through with this horrendous sacrifice, you have to understand, this is not like Yahweh. This is not like the God Abraham had heard about who was following. This is like, a, like Molech. This is like the God of the Canaanites. This is like the God who would demand child sacrifice. Not like Yahweh except in a bizarre twist of events. God tells this man to sacrifice his only son. And what does Abraham do? He trusts him. He trusts him. He goes up this mountain and at the last moment says, the angel of the Lord stays his hand. He says, Abraham, stop. Don't do it. I will provide a sacrifice. Abraham, his wife Sarah, and his family, they're blessed. In their intimacy, they're then commissioned to multiply, to bear fruit, multiply, and impact the world. Are you seeing the pattern? This happens over and over and over. And we could go on. We'd go another 14 generations, and then we'd get to King David. And God says the same thing to him. Ironically, it's here that David's son, Solomon, would 
build a temple. Eventually, 14 generations later, the empire Babylon would come down and destroy Solomon's temple. And they'd be taken out of the land that God had promised to bless them in. Another 14 generations go by. And then Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb who would provide atonement for the sins and the blessings of the world, shows up. And just around the same place, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is crucified for the sins of the world. The faithful one blesses all of creation. If we're talking about being a fruitful family, how do you understand fruitfulness? What does it mean to be fruitful? Now, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm wanting to unpack a bit of the Old Testament because this is where the paradigm begins. You often hear this, well, let's be fruitful. Are you fruitful? Are you bearing fruit? Some of you might think, like, immediately you might think evangelism. Like, are you actually reaching lost people? Some of you might immediately think Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit. Are you exhibiting character traits or things in your life that would resemble the Spirit moving? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But what really does it mean to be fruitful? Can you do those things? Can you... Have all of the appearances of godliness and yet still actually deny the power of God working through your life? Can you look fruitful like the fig tree from a distance that Jesus thought was in season because it had leaves, which meant it was to be fruitful? But when he got closer, he realized, uh, no, it's not fruitful. What does it really mean to be a fruitful son or daughter of God, to be a fruitful family that looks like Christ. Well, you might say, okay, well, if we're just going to go based on what we've read, Genesis 1, 4, 6, 9, etc., seems to me we're kind of talking about, like, making babies. I mean, that would be like the literal sort of application. Some of you are like, Cool. Mm. I guess it's cool. Let's go to John 15. This is actually where we were at two weeks ago. We were talking about friendship. I want to go back here. Jesus redefines fruitfulness. John 15, verse 1. He says, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. It's a vine metaphor. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that is God the Father, takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, he's talking about fruit. Verse 5. I am the vine... You are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 7, if you abide in me 
and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father will bless you. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his or her life for his friends. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should last. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. What is fruitfulness? To be fruitful is to be joined together. Jesus is talking in the context of friendship. You are my friends if you do what I command you, if you love like I love. And no greater love is there than this, than for a friend to lay his life down for another. To be fruitful is to be joined together, to be friends, to be a family that loves each other the way we have been loved so that the world around that the world around us is blessed. It is enriched, it is built up, it is challenged, it is transformed in a way that lasts because of the way we're growing in our love for one another. What is fruitfulness? Fruitfulness is what happens to the world around us when we come together and love each other in a way that produces something that's like Jesus and that lasts. It's basic spiritual maturity. You know, um, I may have shared this with a few of you, but that something happened to me over the summer that I would say changed my life. Can I tell you about it? I'm going to tell you about it. Spent about two and a half weeks with my wife in South Africa. All of her family is in South Africa. We brought the kids with us. And uh, her parents are farmers. So they, they live way out in the middle of like a desert, basically, called the Karoo, uh, the Eastern Cape in South Africa. And her, her parents are like salt to the earth, just wonderful, simple Christian people. And they live out in this, this farm. They've been out there for, what, 30 years? 40 years. It does something to you. Very, very peaceful. Uh, Shirley's dad, Rob, I really look up to him a lot. He's, he's, a, he's just, a, he, he's, it's like being around Jesus when I'm around Rob. And I'd say that undeniable fruit of that is the way his children love each other and also follow Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. But I remember uh, Rob was getting ready to go to church. We, were, we, were, we arrived on a Friday or Saturday and terribly jet lagged. Rob said, hey, I'm going to go to church in the morning. Of course, I, I was immediately like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go. And he very kindly and um, gently dissuaded me from coming. He said, Simon, you're jet lagged. You're on holiday. Just, just relax, sleep in, be with your family. And I thought, no, no I'm going to wake up and go. Of course, I was ridiculously jet lagged. So I didn't wake up. And he goes, 
He drives an hour and a half to get to a tiny little church out in the middle of nowhere where there's apparently about maybe 12 to 15 people. And that's his, that's his church. He drives an hour and a half every Sunday because that's the closest fellowship that he can actually be at. And he's committed to it. He shows up early. He makes all the tea. Sometimes he'll lead worship. Sometimes he'll preach. But he was telling me before he left how it's, he goes to this church um, always hoping to be able to share something with someone. He, he wants to serve. He wants to be a blessing. Anyways, he comes back. Three-hour round trip for this little church service. And I said, Rob, how was church? And he lights up. So excited. And he said, Simon, God spoke to me this morning. And I'm like, okay, go on. What, Rob, what did God say? And he's like, oh, it was so amazing. I, I, God spoke to me so clearly. And, and in fact, it's something that God, God has been saying to me um, quite regularly over, over a period of months now. And I'm like, well, go on. Like, what, what did he say? Like, this is really getting exciting. Oh, he spoke to me. It was so powerful. I'm like, Rob, just tell me, what, what do you think God said to you? And he said, oh, Simon, God told me that I need to stop thinking about myself so much and focus more on the interests of others. I'm not going to lie. Part of me was like, really? Like, I was hoping for a vision, something a little more spectacular. And then, of course, it, it hit me. This is a mature Christian man. He's been walking with Jesus for, for many, many years now. And this is what gets him excited. To be able to drive an hour and a half to meet with maybe a dozen fellow believers. Because for him, it's an opportunity to, to love and to serve some people the way he has been loved and served by Jesus. It's the mark of Christian maturity. When you desire to join together, to be in relationship with one another, to be blessed so that you might bless others. So that you might think about yourself just a little bit less today and think about how you can be a blessing to the people around you. This kind of fruitfulness is born out of an aggressive pursuit of intimacy. It sounds like this, I'm going to fight for our relationship because every movement of hatred begins with just two individuals. A husband who chooses to blame his wife rather than fighting for their intimacy. A brother who chooses to attack his own sibling rather than face the rejection that's got his own heart all in knots. A son who chooses to expose the shame of his father rather than fight for their relationship. That's the story of Noah. His son Ham exposes his nakedness. It's a rather bizarre, bizarre story. But instead of covering his father, instead of prioritizing their intimacy, he ends up telling dad or telling his brothers, dad got drunk 
and got naked in the tomb. It always starts with relationship. Nations grow in conflict. Races become separated, not because of like a systematic epidemic, but something that started with just people, just neighbors, just people living together. Churches split because of people who would rather fight and be insecure and focus more on themselves rather than fight for relationship, fight for family because it's in family, because it's in the context of unity that God commands his blessing so that we might love each other in a way that changes the world. This is the kind of love that is this fruitfulness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. All of these are relational fruits. Outside of relationship, they're just abstract emotions. They're things you can think about, perhaps feel, maybe to some degree experience between you and God, but really it's worked out in actuality when we come together. We begin to figure out the hard, complicated stuff of family, intimacy, relationship. And every movement, just like every movement of hatred begins with just two individuals, so does every movement of healing, reconciliation, forgiveness, and joy. It begins with one individual saying to another, you are worth fighting for. Our relationship is worth fighting for because this family is on the move. God is doing something through us together. And whereas maybe Adam failed and Noah failed and you know Abraham actually even kind of failed himself. The twist there is that he exhibited something of trust in God. He was looking to provision in Messiah who would come and ultimately it was Jesus and through his work made a way for us to love like he loves and next week we're gonna talk all about the work of the Spirit. That'll be our fourth F. Any guesses as what the word might be? Fail? Did you say fail? No, no. Yeah. From the beginning, our directive was to be blessed, be together, and subdue the chaos. We were meant to overcome evil. This is how Jesus crushed the head of the serpent by laying his life down for us. And this is how the children of God engage in battle. How is it going for you? How are you doing? How are we doing? Family, how are we doing? How are your relationships? Are you fighting for intimacy? Are you growing in your fruitfulness? Because God is on the move. God is wanting to grow us up. That in little ways, in big ways, in real ways, in sacrificial ways, we would love each other the way that he loves. And we would fight for it. It's an aggressive kind of intimacy. It's not casual. It's not passive. It looks like the cross. It looks like a warrior going to battle for his brothers and sisters. It's a violent kind of love. It's a good love. It's how God loves. It's how he conquers evil. 
Can I invite the band to come forward, please? I actually had four more points. Um, But instead of doing that, we're going to have some baptisms. Yeah. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Specifically, this business of laying your life down for one another. Um, someone said fail. You're right. With, without Jesus helping us, unless we're abiding in him, guys, good luck. Good luck. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, which means we're not going to get anywhere without having the security that comes from knowing that I am loved. We can only love each other the way that we have been loved. So it always begins in a posture of receptivity. Jesus, I'm broken. Jesus, I'm empty. Jesus, I'm hungry. Jesus, help. That's called repentance. We say, I can't do this in my own strength. I I fail every time. Jesus, help, and he helps. That's the beginning. It's the beginning like every day. Jesus, I'm hungry. You're my daily bread. Jesus, I can't do anything apart from you today. I don't want to try because I have. It doesn't work. I become, I either get really good at it and become self-righteous and arrogant thinking that I've got this religious stuff on lock or I just fail and feel forever separated from my God. And the cool thing about following Jesus, and this will be my last point, is that it always begins from a point of identity. Jesus doesn't say, do this, 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 and this, and once you get good at it, come see me, and then, and then we'll, we'll see what happens. Jesus says, I've done everything you can't do for you, therefore trust in me, and this is who I say you are, this is your identity, Now enjoy living it for the rest of your life. Enjoy practicing it. Enjoy learning how to be who I say you are because the scriptures say that as he was, so are we in this world. My identity is all wrapped up in Jesus. So I'm not just trying to be someone I'm not. I'm trying to live who God says I am because of who he is and what he's done on my behalf. So I can't do it without him. Here's the last, last point. <laughs> Have you guys ever heard of floating head Jesus? It's a bit like bobblehead Jesus, but it's Jesus has a body on earth. We're it. We're it. So it's no good just to simply say, well, I believe in Jesus in my brain, but I'm, I, I really don't know much about his body it's no good to say, oh, I, it's just me and Jesus, me and Jesus, me and Jesus. No, it's not just you and Jesus. Jesus has a body and we're it. Jesus helps us. Jesus gives us grace. Jesus loves us. Jesus gives us everything we need in the context of his body. We do it together. How insane is that? Because we're so messy and difficult and complicated, which makes his grace all the more incredible.
So what is about to happen now? It's, it's twofold. Primarily, when someone gets baptized, it's a picture of repentance. It's saying, I'm dying to myself. I give up. I surrender. Lord Jesus, help. And we're buried with him, and then we're raised up with him into new life. Our new identity begins right then, right there. It's also like a bit of an initiation into his family. It's like uh, when, when, when my wife and I, this doesn't, we had our kids in the UK, um, so I'm not sure how it happens in the States these days, but remember old TV shows when someone would have a kid and the whole family would show up and they'd like be in the waiting room passing around cigars like in the hospital? That's like a thing, right? No? Okay. It's a family affair. It's not just people like witnessing the event. It's, it's the family coming together. Bust out the cigars. A new son or daughter has come home. Woo! Heaven erupts in celebration. And the family of God says, we just grew. We got a new appendage. The body is getting bigger. We're being built up in love. And it is a celebration. It's something to get really excited about. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.